we're going to continue our series through the epistle of First Timothy. And so it would be really helpful if you could open your Bibles again to the epistle reading, First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You can find it on page 1183, page 1183, 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. You also find an outline in the very center of your bulletin. So if you're the kind of person who likes to follow an outline, um, open that as well. Let's start with a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the wondrous gift of your word. We pray now that as we consider that work, that word together, you would grant us attentive minds and hearts and prepare us not only to understand, but to rightly respond to this word of grace. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier in this letter, Paul urged Christians that we should be living godly lives. And I'm, and I'm sure that there is nobody who is here this evening who does not want to live a godly life. But what is it to live a godly life? Is it perhaps to be like the classic Hindu holy man who, who tries to destroy his human desires with torment. I was reading about them on the internet, and some of them, they, they live in the wild, and, and in, in the heat of summer, they, they light fires around themselves, so it's even hotter, and they suffer more, and, and then in the cold of winter, they, they wear wet clothing. Is that godliness? Or perhaps it's like Buddha. Perhaps it's giving up a life of luxury and wealth to become some uh, a homeless wanderer who seeks enlightenment, through deep meditation and withdrawal from self and world. Perhaps that's it. Or perhaps it would be even more godly if we were to emulate Simon Stylites, that holy monk who famously lived on the top of a pillar in the desert for 46 years, torturing his body in all weathers until he died still on top of the pillar. Perhaps our example should be someone like Julian of Norwich, who, who bricked herself into a hole in a church wall and regularly starved herself almost to death as part of her devotions. And I suspect that for many of us, these do seem to be great examples of holy men and women. But I want to ask if that kind of life is in fact the life of godliness. Again, I ask, what is it to be truly godly? When answer this, our passage today will show us three things. First, it will show us the secret of true godliness. And by contrast, it will show us false godliness. Second, it will show us the great value of true godliness. And third, the passage will show us the important ways that God has given to us to be growing in true godliness together. First then, what is the secret, the mystery of true godliness? And this is chapter 3 and verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory 
Turns out that the mystery of godliness is actually not such a secret after all, is it? The mystery of godliness comes from things which were done and seen in public as God worked salvation in his son. You notice that from the way he describes the gospel here. Do you see, he doesn't talk of Jesus becoming flesh. Although he did become flesh, if he hadn't taken on our flesh, he couldn't have died to take away our sins on the cross. Rather, do you see what he says? He says, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Not only did he become flesh, but that flesh was seen. It wasn't a secret. From the day of his birth to the day he was nailed on the cross to die for the sins of the world, he was visible, touchable, and public. As Acts says, these things were not done in a corner. See how he speaks of the Spirit. Again, he doesn't just speak of the Spirit as as the one who raises Jesus, but as the one who vindicated him. For by raising him, not only is he giving him life again, but he is publicly and openly declaring that this Jesus has indeed offered the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all who trust in him. Same with angels. He doesn't say only that they proclaimed Christ, but they proclaimed the Christ who they saw. And this message, this public message of what Christ has done in history is the same thing which was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Do you see whether it is by God or angels or Jews or Gentiles, it's the same witness. Christ came in the flesh, he died and he rose and he ascended before their very eyes into the heights of glory. And do you see what that means? It means that a true godliness has got nothing to do with any kind of secret knowledge or, 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 or things that come from dreams or from visions or, or myths or, or any, any kind of that kind of thing. True godliness comes from what God did in Jesus in public as he lived and died for us. And that's important to get because Paul is writing here to prepare Timothy particularly for another type of godliness a false godliness, which is on its way to him in Ephesus. And this is not a godliness, you see, that comes from the public and historical work of Christ, but from somewhere far more worrying. Where will this false godliness come from? Scarily, he says, it will come from deceitful spirits and demons themselves. This is chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now he's not saying that there will be teachers among them who will wake up in the morning and go and say, let me find a demon and ask the demon what I should teach. What he's saying is that there will be teachers who, who long ago, having deserted the true mystery of godliness, have been easily led astray by these demons, these spirits, into something else. And they're easily led, you see, because of verse 2. It says, it is through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That is, through their long association with sin, their consciences have become numb. They no longer welcome nor wish for the clear teaching of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. 
for them, do you see? It is far more comfortable to preach some other kind of godliness, some special practice, some devotion, some beating of the body, or, or, or some myth, something which doesn't involve them actually turning away from sin in their lives and finding faith in Christ. The kind of false godliness that lets me delude myself that I am godly when I'm actually as devoted to sin as ever I were. Do you see, when it comes to the pursuit of godliness, it's not a choice between preaching Christ and not preaching Christ. It is a choice between preaching Christ and preaching the teachings of demons. So what kind of teachings are these? What do the demon teachings promote? Do they teach people to bow down to statues of the devil or take their children and sacrifice them to goat gods in the desert? No. They teach something more dangerous and evil than that. They teach a counterfeit godliness, something which looks to the eyes of the world like it is godliness, but which isn't. And there are two examples given. This is chapter 4 and verse 3. First, those who forbid marriage, and then those who forbid certain foods. Look anywhere in the world and you will find people who for some reason believe that forbidding marriage is a form of godliness. Look at any religion or cult and you'll be hard-pressed to find someone thought of as a holy man or woman who is happily married. Even in some Christian denominations, until today, celibacy is being held up as, an, as the ideal, even the requirement for a godly clergyman. But, but is this the biblical teaching of godliness? Or well, not in the slightest. It is directly contrary to what the Bible says. If we look at scripture, we find that marriage and the sexual relations which are part of it are a good gift from God to his people. A good institution to be entered into with thanksgiving Think of the very first thing God says of it in Genesis. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. And much later, when God comes to picture the greatest godliness of all, the love of Christ who gave himself up for his church, he pictures it with nothing less than the picture of a good and perfect marriage. Not only do you see other demon teachings failing to promote a true godliness? They're actually promoting a kind of evil ungodliness of, of starting to call bad the good and godly things that God has designed for his people. Same kind of thing applies to the teachings concerning forbidding certain foods. Because likewise, the world in general seems to think that godliness must have something to do with what you eat. Commands for fasting, uh, to be vegetarian, to forbid this food or that food are common in cults and religions everywhere. But what does the Bible itself say? Again, it disagrees strongly with the very idea of these self-made or should I say demon-made religion. Now it is true that fasting in order to have time to focus rightly on prayer is rightly and properly found in the New Testament. But it is never taught as a way 
to become godly or, or holy in itself. And if you look at the whole of God's word, you realize that right from Genesis, God has specifically and clearly given all flesh, all animals, as well as all vegetation to mankind for food. And Jesus amongst us declared the same, didn't he? As he declared all foods clean. This is chapter 4 and verse 3. God created foods to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Do you see, if I teach people to, to refuse certain foods, I'm actually teaching them to refuse God's good gifts. Instead of teaching them to, to eat their daily bread with thanksgiving to God, I'm teaching them to despise God and treat his gracious provision for his children of food like it's an evil he brings us. Clearly, these teachings have nothing to do with godliness at all. And in the time since this letter was written, there have been a thousand variations on the same thing. Other ways to convince people to try to refuse as many of God's good gifts as possible while neglecting and abusing the bodies that God himself created, which he redeemed in his son and which he will raise again to glory. Not one of those false methods come from the public historical gospel of Jesus on the cross. And not one leads to true godliness. But having seen the danger, how do we keep ourselves safe from it? Well, we just do what Paul told Timothy to do. This is verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Same for us, isn't it? If we keep teaching the gospel of Christ and his death for us upon the cross and warning against counterfeit godliness, then when this kind of teaching does arise, we'll recognize it and run from it. And let me tell you, it is absolutely worth running from it because true godliness has great promise. What great promise? It's in verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds, present, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Concerning the promise for the present life, we should include at the very, very least, the blessed spiritual life that Scripture speaks of so often. The promises of the peace that knows no understanding, of the joy unspeakable and full of glory, the wonderful delight and assurance of knowing God's love through the gospel of his Son and the forgiveness of our sins. Let me tell you that unlike those demon teachings which promise us so much but deliver nothing, 
true godliness, through the true gospel, delivers not only for the present, but also the life of the world to come. For it brings to us the incomparable joys of eternal life with Christ through his death for us. And let me tell you that we can be certain of this. Because do you see that this true godliness is resting not on a theory or a dream or a vision or a philosophy, but on the public, factual, open work of God in his Son and his death on the cross. We can be certain because that means that God to us is no longer just the only God, the only one who decides about salvation, but he is the God who has personally saved you and I who believe in his gospel. He is not just the savior of all people, but especially of us who believe. Do you see for us, us who have salvation through the cross of Christ, we are able to set our hopes in all our lives upon his promise confidently because we know he will bring it to pass. We have every reason in his promise to toil and strive for true godliness. And this is verse 9 he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. If that's the great value of pursuing godliness, how do we keep our focus on it? Again, just as Paul says to Timothy, verse 11, we command and teach these things. Well, having set out what truly God, what true godliness is in this way, Paul now moves on to talking about how one might pursue true godliness. And he gives here quite a number of things. He gives Timothy eight things that all work towards true godliness in Ephesus. And so I have to touch on them quite briefly, you understand. First, he tells Timothy that he needs to show great maturity. If you have a leader in the church who you can look up to because of his godliness and maturity, not only will you listen to him, but he will be able to lead you in that same godliness. On the other hand, if you have a leader who is immature, you will end up either despising him or even worse, copying his immaturity. Timothy here in Ephesus is young. He's young compared to Paul and presumably most of the other elders there. But his age doesn't give him an excuse for being immature or ungodly. Rather, as a leader, he must show that he is mature, not by getting older, but by mature action. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in the gracious godly words that build up in Christ, in conduct, having put away his youthful passions, in love for all God's people, in faith, <clears throat> in his firm trust in Christ, and particularly in purity, in the way that he can relate rightly to young and old and male and female, without greed or lusts or evil of any kind. Same is true now, isn't it? If you are a leader amongst us, whatever your age, don't rely on your position, but demonstrate your maturity. Demonstrate true godliness 
be ready to stand before the congregation and say with a good conscience, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, as Paul himself did. And as for the rest of us, understand that the call for Timothy to be mature as a leader is to set us an example. And so look for godly leaders in your midst. Learn from their godliness. Follow their leaders. They try to show you a better way than gossiping or, or, or having suspicions or pridefulness. I imitate them as they seek to imitate Christ in, in humility, in sacrifice, in genuine love. The next three things he lists all relate to what we do together as church. What we do together as church to build godliness. And this is verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The public of reading of Scripture is a term from the synagogue practice. In the synagogues, the Jews, Sabbath by Sabbath, would be, be reading through the whole of their Scriptures sequentially. Paul is saying here, that kind of public reading of scripture is to be a big part of our Christian gathering as well. Exhortation is another synagogue reference. After they had read from the law and the prophets, there was a time when someone would explain and apply the texts. They would make clear the meaning and, and <coughs> explain particularly what it meant to respond rightly to what it says. And then by teaching, particularly, is meant the private and public instruction of the faith. Particularly, the teaching of Christ and, and the teachings of the apostles, which, which for us, do you see, become the New Testament. These things were important for Timothy in order for him to build true godliness in Ephesus. And they are no less important for building true godliness amongst us here today. If we neglect or marginalize the public reading of the Bible and exhortation and teaching, then we should not expect to be growing in true godliness. And this also means that when we do gather, we should try hard to pay close attention. We should follow the readings that are read as carefully as we can. And particularly, we should listen as closely as we can to the sermons Focusing our minds, our hearts ready to respond, not because the preachers are interesting, not because they're amusing, not because they're clever, but because we know that this is one of the primary ways in which God himself intends to build us in godliness. But let me give you a spiritual health warning. We have today far fewer services, where we read far less scripture and have far shorter sermons with, with much less teaching than just about any generation of saints that has gone before us. Speaking honestly with you, if you are depending on just this one Sunday service each week and a short sermon for your spiritual growth in godliness, then that I worry your diet is insufficient. You need more than this. The fifth thing that leads into godliness is verse 14. Here, Paul calls on Timothy not to neglect the gift he has. Now, we don't know what the gift is, but we know that because he has that gift, he should use it for the sake of the congregation. 
seems true for us as well, isn't it? I know that many of us have been given by God wonderful gifts, maybe in teaching or encouragement or counselling or music or giving or helping or, or so many other things. But, but somehow, whether by false humility or, or just laziness, we, we're happy to neglect them, aren't we? Heed the word of Scripture. Do not neglect the gift you have. Use it to build up the church in godliness. And the last two things he mentions that lead to true godliness concern things that Timothy as a leader must watch carefully, and that's verse 15. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That is, as, as Timothy leads in all of these things that we've been seeing, he must be very, very careful, first of all, to guard his own life against falling away from the gospel and into ungodliness and sin. Very important that he watch himself. But secondly, he is to guard the teaching. He is to watch closely that neither he nor some other teacher starts to teach anything other than the gospel of Christ's death and forgiveness in him and all that accords with it. And to that, there is a very great and wonderful promise attached. For he says in verse 16 that if he persists in this, he will save both himself and his hearers. And so to the leaders amongst us today, know that the very same thing is true here. Keep a watch on yourself and on the teaching, and not only will you yourself stay firm to the true gospel, but through your godly ministry, many others will be led in the same way. You will bring them too to share in the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life in Christ. Well, having taught the text, We'll finish by briefly recapping the three main points and exhorting you in how you should respond. Point one, true godliness comes only from the gospel of Christ and what he did for us. And anything else is a false godliness, not from God, but from the demons. And so if you are here today, and, and, and for, for one reason or another, you have been taught that godliness means keeping certain devotions or abstaining from certain things or keeping up certain practices or, or depriving your body or, or, or any other such man-made or, or, or demon-made religion, which is neither rooted nor taught of Christ, then stop practicing these things and, and stop teaching them. They are not leading you to true godliness, nor are they harmless. They're the teachings that come from the very demons who would delight more than anything to drag you with them to the depths of hell itself. If that's you, come back to the true gospel, to the sure and sweet confidence of sins forgiven by a God who loves you so dearly. He himself has paid the cost of your redemption in the suffering and death of his son. Put your faith in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Stand on the solid rock. Everything else is demonic sinking sand. 
Second point, we have seen that in Christ, true godliness is of great value, both for the present and for the life of the world to come. And that means for us who trust in Christ and his cross, we can look back to what he's done for us. We can look forwards to the wonders of his promise of eternal life. And we have every reason to labor hard for true godliness. Let us do that. Let us work to be godly in Christ in everything that accords with the gospel of a blood-drenched cross, an empty tomb, and that eternal King who has had mercy on sinners like me and you. And then finally, point three. We have seen today some of those wondrous means of grace which God has gifted to his church by which we might grow in godliness until he gathers us for glory. We've seen how very, very important it is that we have the reading of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, and the good, faithful exhortation from it. Next week when you come, make every effort to be attentive to the readings and to the sermons and, and be ready to respond to the exhortation. And seeing that we have so little Scripture and teaching on a Sunday, try to find other opportunities. Maybe join the Tuesday night training courses, join the women's Bible study, join a small group, or, or perhaps like many of our congregation do, download the sermon from Smack on, on your iPhone or something and, and listen to it during the week. It's, it's all free of charge, you see. But whatever you do, do not neglect the gospel of Christ, the true mystery of godliness, nor the means that he has given us the good ways he builds and guards and keeps us in godliness through that same gospel of a son who loved us and died for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you most of all for your son. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we ask, Almighty Father, that we would hold firm to that true gospel and all the godliness it leads us to. We ask, Father, you would give us wisdom to see when we have been following those teachings of demons uh, which have been threatening your church. Grant us strength to turn from them and back to the gospel of your Son. Pray that you would give us attentive ears and open minds and hearts that we might benefit as, as much as possible from the reading and teaching of your word each week. We pray, Father, that through all of these things you would build us up in godliness until you gather us in glory. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.